Okay, so my high school had some very cool kids. And if you've listened to this show, you will be unsurprised to learn that I did not number amongst them. Steve Otto, Eddie Bates, Pat Shana, not me. And maybe that's why I was so excited. Because Snap Judgment was about to play the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. with the coolest kids of all, Black Thought and Questlove from the roots and the Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, right? Right? It's a big event for a wonderful organization, Youth Speaks. I'm going to go out with a Snap band, story or two, and throw to two of my heroes. But I got to look good first, clean. In the dressing room, I take a shower. I've got a brand new razor for just this occasion because I like that shaven head look. So I lather up, start shaving, and with one misplaced, not paying attention stroke, I cut off the back of my head. I do. I scrape a large patch of skin off and instantly Blood is everywhere, and I'm shouting and failing and trying to get towels and such or whatever, and it looks like a murder scene. The applied pressure nonsense is not working. I stumble out into the hallway, run into the makeup, and yeah, can you fix this? I gotta go on in 10 minutes. <laughs> she screams, runs down the hall like Usain Bolt. She returns with not one, not two, but three EMT. Uh, Sir, you have a large open head wound. We're gonna have to wrap your entire scalp in order to suppress the bleeding. No, 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 no. I have to go on stage. I can't have a big thing in my head. Sir, you're bleeding profusely. And I'm busy pleading my case, half-dressed, blood dripping down my back. And right then, of course, Questlove and Black Thought walk by. They don't say anything, just walk by. <laughs> and I'm like, look, 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 look. Give me 10, 15 minutes. I won't turn my head. I'll just look forward the whole time. Just get me that far. I get the rest of my clothes on. And the snap band starts playing. I go out. Welcome, Washington, D.C. I don't turn from side to side. I keep my neck frozen forward. Storyteller with a The show goes on. And now, presenting Quest Love and Black Thought. I leave the stage, and the EMT swarm start cleaning my wound and winding bandages around my head. I can only imagine what the cool guys thought of this scene. Now, from WNYC. On the Snap Judgment 2016 Look Back episode, I told you all that to tell you this. After that debacle, you can imagine my surprise when the same black thought agreed to rock his story on Snap Judgment Live in New York City. I couldn't believe it. But this time, Snappers, I made sure to shave well in advance. Snap Judgment. The uh, next guest about to welcome to the stage. He's probably responsible more than anybody else for the soundtrack of my middle years. It's a brother who, along with his partner, Questlove, 
He's taken his band, The Roots, around the world. They now landed as a house band on The Tonight Show. Everything this brother touches turns to gold. Snap Judgment just got a little bit thunkier. <laughs> Please welcome to this stage, Tariq Black Thought Tribe. I am taking the stage at the Ross Gilder Festival outside Copenhagen, Denmark. There are two acts playing on the main stage. It's my band, The Roots, and it's Bruce Springsteen in the East Street Band. So we come out, we run through our set, and it was stellar, if I do say so myself. We did a great show. Afterwards, we're in the dressing room, still reeling talking about how great the show was and how great it was that Bruce and the band stood off in the wings and watched our set in its entirety. And we started asking ourselves questions like, well, what did he think? Was his head moving? Did you, did you see him tapping his feet? And uh, stuff like that. And then in a surreal turn of events, Bruce came into our dressing room and he asked, he said, uh, you guys want to come back out and perform with us during our set? <laughs> Needless to say, of course we want to come back out and perform with you. Mr. Springsteen, uh, what are we going to perform? And he's going through his, his head and he says, uh, uh, maybe we'll do Born to Run, huh? Maybe we'll do, uh, let's do Wrecking Ball. And he says, no, let's do the East Street Shuffle the way we did it with you guys on the show with Jimmy. Great, say no more, we're out there. We're on stage, I'm performing. Bruce Springsteen is right next to me. His lyrics, his lyric sheets are sprawled on the stage at my feet and he relinquishes his microphone to me and my partner Kirk Douglas and we're leaning in to share the mic the same way that Bruce, who's to my right, and Lil Stevie Van Zandt, who's to my left, the same way they lean in to share the mic. That's what me and Kirk were doing and we're, and we're rocking it. And, um, for me, it was a career high. I've never felt more American. I've never felt, yeah. I've, I've never felt like more of a, an ambassador of the arts. And um, yeah, it was a career high. I remember thinking to myself, you know, we finally arrived, you know? And this is a feeling that stuck with me well into my arrival the next day at JFK Airport. So we land, coming through customs and immigration at JFK, and the VIP treatment and feeling kind of continues because we're being ushered out of the mere mortal line and into the, into the line where uh, you know, they have the diplomats into the country. So as we're coming through the diplomatic entrance, I hear a couple people, some are airport workers, others are uh, you know, just travelers, and they're saying, um, you know, who is he? As to say, you know, who am I to be ushered through the diplomats entrance into the country? So my partner Questlove, he goes ahead of me and he's, he's, he's in, he's at the baggage claim now, easy breezy. Um, I'm expecting to come in and do the same, but there's a, a problem. So the gentleman who's looking at my passport, he looks down at my passport, looks up at me, 
down at the passport, up at me, and he says, uh, surely this is something that's gonna be resolved relatively quickly, but you're gonna need to step into this room over here on the side. You know, so now I'm at JFK, I'm in the room where folks are interrogated when their name raises a red flag. Enter Officer Courtney. Now, I'm not usually the one to prejudge, but Officer Courtney in Immigrations at JFK was such an that you could tell with him just sitting there doing nothing. He was a textbook. So I'm sitting in the room with Officer Courtney for what felt like an eternity before he finally looks up and asks, you want to tell me about Lancaster County? And I'm thinking, Lancaster County? Um, I mean, that's where I went to college 20 years ago. Surely there can't be any matter that was left unresolved between me <laughs> and the fine people of Lancaster County, PA. But Officer Courtney says, no, Lancaster County wants you, so you're going to jail. Now, I try to name drop, even though it's something that I never do. I said, hey, I mean, come on, man, I'm just a... Uh, I'm, I'm an entertainer from the late night show with Jimmy Fallon. I just want to get, get back home to my family for the last few hours of the weekend. Surely you can understand that. And he says, nope, you're going to jail. So I asked if I could make a phone call and he offers to make the call for me. He calls my wife and there's no answer. So I get to thinking about home and my daughter who was about six years old and you know, who wanted to see me uh, upon my arrival home from Europe, I'm thinking about my wife and the rosemary garlic chicken that I asked her to have uh, <laughs> waiting for me when I got back. And um, my wife calls back. Courtney answers the phone. Courtney, and you know, his answer to all my wife's questions about how come I hadn't returned from the airport yet and what was going on, he just says, your husband's going to jail. Bang, and he hung, <laughs> hung up the phone. So, um, at this point, I feel defeated, deflated. Uh, I'm super confused. And uh, I'm being ushered out of the airport. I'm being paraded in front of some of the same people who a little while earlier were asking, you know, who's he? Now they're asking who's he, but they're asking for a different reason. So I got handcuffs on, I'm taken out of JFK, and before I know it, I'm in Queens County Central Booking Facility. Uh, being given what appears to be preferential treatment because I was in a cell that had unlimited local uh, phone access. I had a pay phone in there I could use. It had a, a clean toilet and it was directly across from the night watch desk where uh, you know the corrections officers were staffed and they, they had to you know watch what was going on. So I felt like you know, I was in the, the executive suite, so to speak, <laughs> of this jail in the wee hours of the night a, a corrections officer came and asked me to change cells and he took me from my cushy executive suite into the deeper, darker, more dank area of the jail where there were less people around and you know, the, there was less of a watchful eye being kept. And I'm wondering what I did to deserve this downgrade. You know, so I'm there and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and finally the guy comes back and um, I'm, I'm, I'm essentially his captive audience. He begins to, to perform. <laughs> so, I'm on one side of the bars, he's on the other side, he's performing his demo for me. 
And he's explaining to me, you know, that, you know, his name is Darnell McCormick, but his stage name is D-Nails. And he's like, you know, my whole angle is the fact that I'm a corrections officer, but I'm proud of it, see? It's a lot of these other they corrections officers, they try to keep it on a low. So that's gonna be my whole angle. I'm D-Nails, I'm 5-0. You know what I'm saying? Now, I have uh, 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 two options. I could play along and uh, you know, act as if he was you know, one of the greatest artists I'd ever heard and try and expedite my uh, release. Or I could keep it 100 and just tell him the truth what I really felt about his music. So, needless to say, I said, hey man, you sound great. <laughs> I said, uh, I said, man, we should exchange information and when I get out, we should maybe link up and do something, you know? So, we exchange information and I hear some of the other corrections officers asking D-Nails, who's he? And I hear them saying stuff like, uh, hey, it's Will I Am. <laughs> it's, uh, that's, uh, that's Mr. Cheeks from the Lost Boys over there. Nah, silly, it's Questlove. It's 2 chains, all sorts of stuff. So I sit there, I wait, I wait, and finally I'm released um, with no time to spare before duty calls. So it's now Monday afternoon, it's time for me to report to my day job. So I get out, I had a few words with my attorney, and he directed me to the subway. I jumped on the train, ride from Queens, and the train stops in the bottom of Rockefeller Center. I run up the stairs, jump on the elevator, run into Studio 6B, still just totally bewildered. I'm like, you know, what just happened? And before I know it, I'm on stage. I got my signature fedora, a suit jacket, and uh, no, no shoelaces still, no belt. <laughs> but I'm on stage, and Jimmy, Jimmy Fallon makes mention of me in, in his uh, monologue. He says, Tariq Trotter, ladies and gentlemen from The Roots, give it up, come on. Come on, give it up for Tariq Trotter from The Roots, ladies and gentlemen. And I'm thinking, thank you. I'm thinking, uh, you know, as I look down at the monitor to make sure that I look cool without my laces in my belt and that you couldn't tell that I just, literally just had gotten out of jail. And um, I'm thinking Tariq Trotter from The Roots. Who's he? Thank you. Tariq Black Thought Trotter, ladies and gentlemen, performed live at the beautiful BAM Theater in Brooklyn. And good news, Snap Live returns to BAM Friday, February 10th, with a show made of magic and fire. We're calling it the Twisted Episode. It features the most demented, deranged, and unhinged storytellers in all the land, backed by the funky sounds of Bell's Atlas. I cannot wait for you to see it. It'll change your life. Get tickets while you can, snapjudgment.org. The original score for that story composed by Alex Mandel and performed live by Alex and the Snap Players, Tim Frick and David Brandt. 
You're listening to Snap Judgment, the 2016 Look Back Special. And when we return, the most affecting reunion story we've ever run, and we destroy our little darlings. When the program continues, stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the 2016 Look Back Special. We're revisiting some of the stories that changed everything. And this next piece is a doozy. We travel to Venezuela, where an intrepid young anthropologist went in search of isolation and adventure and found neither. Snap Judgment. When David Good was a little boy, his mom wasn't around. So he had no mom at soccer practice or to help with homework. But eventually people got curious. They, they wanted to find out, you know, where's your mom? And I told people that my mom died in a car crash. <laughs> the truth was she had left her family, her husband and her three kids, when David was five years old. And as he got older, he couldn't handle his anger. You know, it got to a point where I realized that I can't, I can't keep going on like this, you know, hating myself on and on, you know, thinking, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? I'm going to hide from myself. That's, that's pretty much how it culminated into that decision to go find my mom, to reunite with her. David, what was your biggest fear in going to find your mom? My biggest fear? Uh, getting shot with a bow and arrow. <laughs> I was afraid I was going to get caught in a raid or something. And you hear all these stories of getting shocked by electric eels or getting attacked by a jaguar. <laughs> I had a lot of fears to think about. David's mom is a member of the Yanomami tribe. See, David's dad, Ken Good, is an anthropologist. And in 1975, he traveled by canoe through the rapids of the Orinoco River in Venezuela, deep into the Amazon jungle, trying to find the Yanomami people. The Yanomami are, they're very, very basic in the way they live. They have no clothes. They only count to two. They have no musical instruments. They're just living in a state of nature in the Amazon forest. Ken's teacher, Napoleon Chagnon, had written about the Yanomami, describing them as fierce and prone to war and violence. After days of traveling by canoe and on foot, Ken finally met the Yanomami on the banks of the river. He didn't speak any Yanomami. I pulled up in my outboard canoe, and of course they hear the outboard motor for a mile away, and they came running down. And they were all there and exciting, and they were just there looking and chatting and talking to me and Yanomami. They have no idea. They have no idea there are other languages. They called me Akaporebu, which means ghost tongue. They would stand outside my hut through look through the palm slats and laugh, and everything about me was funny. I take my socks off, and they laughed because my toes were squeezed together from wearing shoes since I was two, and theirs were more splayed for never wearing shoes. He was supposed to stay with the Anamami for 15 months, but he started to learn the language. 
He moved into their communal home. He ended up staying for 12 years. It was just so nice to be there, and I felt so good and happy. That I, there was nothing to ask for. After a few years, some local men had something to ask of him. They wanted him to kind of join their family. One, t- one day, the headman of the village, he came to me and he says, you, you can't stay here all the time without having a wife. So I, nah, I just laughed, you know. Uh, he kept insisting that I take his younger sister. And um, I don't know how old she was. I'm guessing she was about 12 or 13. Now, betrothed is simply is what happens when simply say she's going to be your wife someday. It's sort of like a, a, a promise. I said, you know, no, I can't do that, you know, no. And and so the headman was insisting her older brother, and he was quite a strong-willed guy. So I said, okay, all right, she's my wife. Ken figured it was purely a ceremonial engagement, a formality until he went back home. I figured I'll go home whenever I do, and that'll be the end of that. So the girl's name was Yadima, and he would go with her family on trips into the jungle. We had fun. We used to go hunting and gathering out on the trail, and I was so um, caring about her in every little regard. If she got a cut on her toe or something, and everything just really... And I realized I was thinking about her all the time. <sighs> Their relationship developed over the course of many years. This is what Yadima said about that time, as transcribed by Ken. At dawn and dusk, I thought about Kenny. I remembered how he would carry me on his back. She said, I brought food to his hammock and he would always smile. She talked about missing him terribly when he would go away. You know, how can a PhD candidate from uh, a Western culture uh, marry a, an Amazonian uh, native woman who has never been out of the jungle and thought the whole world was an, an Amazon jungle? I couldn't conceptualize it. That's the way it went, but uh, things changed. It it was totally unexpected. Sometimes emotions are difficult to describe. I I just fell in love with her. I asked Ken what the age difference was between them when they made their marriage official. I don't like to talk about it. You're the first interview I've done in almost 20 years. Why should I have to talk about when I consummated my marriage? He says he believes she was about 15 or 16 when they first consummated their marriage. He's taken a lot of criticism for this over the years. Ken, what's the criticism that bothered you the most? That she was a little girl. There, that I had married a little girl. And that was an abuse. These people only lived to be about 45 or so. The 15-year-old girl in their culture is not the same as a 15-year-old. A 15-year-old here is totally immature. She's a little kid still. She's probably chewing gum at the mall. In in Yanomami culture, she's a woman. She's a full-fledged woman. She's doing all of women's chores, and she's probably pregnant or has a baby. Now you say, well, well, that's them, you know, what do you know, they're Indians. Well, I'm sorry. This all occurred within the confines of their communal structure. Ken had lived in their world for many years, but he was supposed to be there as a professional anthropologist, and his choice was a problem for other anthropologists. You study these people, but you don't get involved with them and and marry them. I said, why not? I said, they're human beings like any other people on Earth. Still, there's a lot that's complicated about their marriage. 
not just for anthropologists. Even in the village, Ken and Yadima had a lot of problems. When Ken had to leave to deal with his visa or paperwork, the others would think he had left forever, and Yadima became fair game. She was mistreated. But for the most part, it worked. They lived together, they hunted together, and at night they slept together in Ken's hammock. And before long, they became pregnant with their first son, David. You know, I do remember playing in the creeks, you know, walking around in the plantain gardens with the kids, practicing archery, shooting lizards, you know, with, with the boys and trying to fine tune our, our hunting skills. David doesn't remember too much else because he was actually raised in New Jersey. Ken got too worried about Yadima's safety in the village. My father had asked my mom, you know, why don't don't you come to my people, come to my village of New Jersey, where we can always be together, and then, you know, I don't have to be afraid for you for being alone in the jungle. And, And she agreed. So that's what they did. They moved from Hasapuateri, Venezuela, to New Jersey. So you can imagine that a woman that lived in the jungle her whole life, and now she's went through a time machine, fast forward like 2,000 years, and in a different cosmos, different world. We just had a little fun. I flipped the switch off and on, and that just was amazing. It's dark and it's light and it's dark as light. She had seen a full-length mirror for the first time, and she freaked out, and she you know, hid behind a bed. My dad had to cover up the mirror. You Somebody know. started up a Jeep, and she went crazy. I didn't see her, but I had to go find her in the bushes because she thought it was an animal. And my father once caught my mom just strolling outside without any clothes on, and he comes and he covers her up, tries to tell her, and, you know, in my world, you got to wear clothes all the time. And... But there were bigger problems, too. For the first time... Yadima was spending a lot of the day alone. Ken was out working, teaching at a nearby college. The man that my father was down in the jungle, you know, it's not the same man that he was up, up here in New Jersey. And he's working hard to try to pay the bills and keep the food on the table. And of course, my mom has no concept of that. She doesn't know why he's gone all the time. The thing about living here is nothing made sense. In her, and not only that, in Yanomami culture, the most important things to them are their family, and not just their kids or their parents, but their extended family. And so she was cut off from that. But you got to understand what it was for her. And I didn't like it. I didn't bring her back here to make her a little American housewife, for God's sake. They had three kids in New Jersey. And all of them would go back together to the village in Venezuela for long visits. David and his brother and sister learned to hunt and how to speak the language. And once... Ken and Yarima went back alone, and Yarima said she wanted to stay. She and Ken went back and forth about it, but when the plane came to the airstrip to take them to New Jersey, Yarima actually fled into the jungle. Ken was worried about the kids, so he boarded the plane, figuring he'd come back for Yarima later. But he never did. Then there was sort of like this realization that set in that, wow, you know, mom, mom's gone and, you know, she's, she's not coming back. Suddenly we became a family of four, three kids and me, and I was a single father. As I, you know, got older, I, I sort of went through this phase where I just didn't want it to be known as a Yanomama, and I don't ever want to hear that word, and, and I never want to, you know, 
I uh, hear about mom again, and I I don't want to be associated with that culture and that tribe. I just wanted to be this typical American kid growing up. You know, I played baseball. I was a favorite boy. It's embarrassing. All of my friends' moms are are picking them up at, you know, soccer practice or driving them to baseball practice. And But my mom is, you know, naked in the jungle eating tarantulas. Of course, all his dad's pictures were in museums and in textbooks because Ken was a leading anthropologist on the Yanomami. In elementary school, we had this periodical that would come out called Scholastic Journal for Kids. You know, there was one on my desk, and I flipped through the page, and and bam, there's a huge picture of me and my uncle in the, in the village in, in the Amazon. And the caption underneath says, you know, Yanomama boy learning how to shoot a bow and arrow with, with a relative. And, and, here, and I just started sweating bullets because I'm like, oh my gosh, everyone in my class is going to find out. And for, for the next you know, 15 to 20 years, it just, just kept festering inside me and it kept getting worse and worse. And I did, you know, turn to alcohol to cope with, you know, a lot of my problems and actually dropped out of high school. So I knew that as, if I had to, you know, survive for the rest of my life, I'm going to have to cope with this. Uh, I, you know, I read my dad's book and, and, you know, I got to understand some of the struggles that my mom had when she was up here. And so I had this innate yearning to go, you know, to want to go find her. So David bought a one-way ticket to Venezuela. It's pretty neat to think that I'm taking the same trip that my father took decades ago. And I remember starting, you know, feeling a little, a little tense, a little anxious that we're getting closer and closer. And when the motor is revving, villagers can hear from a mile away, and it's sort of this, this there's this excitement because you know visitors too often and they scream motor motor and they all start running to the riverbank to see who's coming. We uh, pulled up, introduced ourselves, and they said that I was David, the son of Yanima, and I'm here to go to find her. And so the villagers of Hasapuateri, they said, come out on the boat, we want to we wanna see you, and we want to touch you. And so I was completely mobbed with Yanomama. I had hands all over my body, they were pulling my ear, touching my nose, touching my hair, and that's when, uh, that's when my mom finally arrived. I, I saw her walk in, and she was carrying a basket, and the whole village was in immediately quiet and it was hushed and people were whispering and I can hear them whispering uh, Yadima's name and I stood up and and I I approached her and I realized how do I greet her what's the Yanomami way of greeting when you don't see somebody for 20 years and I know that they don't hug or anything and just sort of this awkward moment at first where everything in me just wanted to hug her and and hold her but I didn't want to make the moment awkward for her either and as we got closer, she just started trembling and crying, and I can remember her hand shaking, and, and she was touching me almost as if to see if I was even real. And I told her, you know, uh, I made it. It's been so long, but I made it. I looked into her eyes, and she just just started crying, and, and then out of nowhere, I just started getting flooded with all these memories of being with her when I was five. My mother's alive, and I found her, and we're together, and now I want to develop this relationship and friendship with her. He wanted to stay for a long time. He didn't know exactly how long, but he hung up his hammock and settled in. As the months went by, uh, she started remembering some English, and one time I was sitting in my hammock, and she comes up to me and says, Hey, do you want some snake? Just pure, perfect English. And I'm looking at her like, 
where did that come from? You know, you know, she was very patient with me, and she knew that, uh, you know, that I was, I lived in the world of the Naba, of the outsider, and that, you know, I have much to learn. David, this isn't the soccer mom relationship that you wanted as a kid. No, no, <laughs> definitely not. But, you know, uh, not too many mothers can go out there and, and kill a bow constrictor for you and come back. <laughs> Pretty soon after his arrival, David was offered the same opportunity as his dad. I was introduced to, to two girls in the village. So I asked, who are, who are these girls? And my mom replied, oh, these, these are my wives. And, you know, David's I, wives. I, yeah, my, my wives, you know, they're, they're two girls. And so I thought a wife was just was going to be like a sister or a brother. But I was wrong. They really, really wanted to be my wife. And they really wanted me to be their husband. And it became evident after I spent some time in the village that they really, really wanted to have kids. <laughs> and, and in their mind, they're probably thinking, you know, his father is a, a Naba, a complete outsider. And he took a Yanomama wife. Surely his son, who is half Yanomama, would obviously would have no problem taking a Yanomama wife. It's just that I grew up in America, and there's this huge cultural barrier where uh, I couldn't be their husband. I couldn't be that Yanomama husband. And it actually turned into some conflicts where <laughs> a couple times at night I had to kick my wife out of the hammock. And then there's times where they ganged up on me saying, you know, you're my Yanomama husband and we're going to have children together and don't be afraid. And, and that's what my mom would say a lot was, uh, don't be afraid. It's okay. They're your wives. Because <laughs> every time they would get close to me, I'd start getting nervous and like, okay. It made him wonder, how did his dad manage to do it, to cross this divide that felt so wide? So he arranged for a boat downstream to a nearby mission where they had a generator where they had a satellite internet connection. So I sat my mom down and in front of the computer and I Skyped my dad. You know, I'm sitting there all of a sudden I'm on Skype and I'm talking to him and he moves over and there's his mother. I said, oh my, I couldn't believe it. He didn't tell me. A little secretive, this guy, but he did, you know. And there I am for the first time in 20 years looking at my wife. And they just started started Skyping each other in Yanomama. I was amazed. She still looked so great. And uh, she had the sticks in her mouth that young girls live in. Uh, we just, I started talking Yanomami first time in 20 years, and I realized I didn't forget it. That was amazing. She looked at me, and she said, are you married? And I said, no. And I looked at her, and I said, are you married? And she said, no. And then we just kind of stood, sat there and looked at each other for about... 15 seconds, and then boom, it was, I said, no. <laughs> uh, because um, people think, um, you still love her. You should go down there and get her. She's waiting for you. As I was watching them interact and, and talk to each other, it just, you know, really hit me that they just seemed to get along so well, the way they just interacted. And, and, and it just, I knew right then and there that why they fell in love, you know, because it's just, it's, they just felt so natural together. What was his motivation? Why did he want me to see and talk to uh, his mother? Was he hoping we'd get back together? I don't know. I don't know. But that's the only reason. He, what do you think? I still love her and should go get her down there? Um, I think, yeah, I think you still love her. But I don't think you should go down there and get her. I think you tried that. Yeah. 
David Good. He's now doing remarkable work with the Yanomami. Check out Project Good on our website, snapjudgment.org. The original sound design was by Renzo Gorio. That story was produced by Anna Sussman with assistance from Beth Morgan. When the Snap Judgment Look Back special continues, we unveil something never released into the wild before now. In just a moment, stay tuned. Welcome back from WNYC Studios. My name is Glenn Washington. You're listening to the Snap Judgment 2016 Look Back Special. Now then, we've got something special. We're bringing out the darlings. Now, what do I mean by that? You see, when Snap producers come with their stories, they often have some piece of darling interview tape that's great, but for whatever reason doesn't quite fit with the story. And because I'm evil, I tell them, cut it. But whenever I demand the producers cut their precious little moments, they cry, they retch, they shake their fist at me and yell, How can you possibly cut this? With scissors. That's how. So, this next segment is a chance for them to bring back those golden moments that we've left behind. Snap judgment. All right, Pat, let me know what you got. Okay, so what I got is some tape that got cut from the Wells Fargo Zim Heavy story, which is the rock band from Zimbabwe. Now, the tape comes from the bass player, Never. Uh huh. And when the band first got started, Never still had a day job at a repair shop for foosball tables. He calls them mini soccer tables. Gotcha. So the day that they finally get their first gig, Mm -hmm. the leader of the band gives them an ultimatum and says, either you're with the mini soccer tables or you're with us. I remember this, yes. So he's at work, boss is sweating him, and he's trying to make the decision of whether or not he stays and makes his money to support himself or pursues his dream. You know what I did? <laughs> I started unscrewing every rubber man on that mini soccer table. You know, when you pull one rod, everything falls. I pulled them out and I heaped the rods. I said, guys, thank you. You have a wonderful time. I'm off. I'm leaving. You can't leave this. Well, open the said, No. Phone the boss. Tell him this is what I've done. I'm off. I'm gone. And then I left. I left the shop. I went across. I bought myself a packet of chips and, and I was walking. I never look back. That's gangster, Pat. That's you how just it goes like, right there. You just there. take the whole thing apart. <laughs> See you. I'm going to buy me some chips now. Peace out. <laughs> so that part of the story didn't make it in because it was like we were running out of time and everybody wanted to get to the band playing a little quicker. But I totally love this story. And I think it's just crazy what, what, what those guys went through. and I mean, they're just heroes of mine for sure. So, Eliza, what do you got for me? So, Joe, I am playing a portion from an interview that I did with Charles Monroe Kane for the story Faith Healer earlier this year. Does this tangent require its own exposition? Um, when you boil it down, the story's about mental health. My wife has this thing, and she knew me before I was on meds and after. We've been together almost 20 years, so. And she is like, 
dude, not taking your medication is selfish. That's a selfish, childish thing to do. And I think she's right. She's like, I'm like, oh, I miss the old me. She goes, no, the old you was selfish. The old you was, it was arrogant and the self-centered. And you, you don't see it, but the new you, the one on the medication, is more compassionate. Wow. Did this resonate with you? Yeah, Specifically totally. for a specific reason? What was totally. that reason? Well, I have anxiety and I medicated for it. And I am totally one of those people who when I was diagnosed, I was like, there's no way I'm going on medication. And then I went on it. And there's so much stigma around it. And I guess for me, I just don't understand why, because all it does is it takes the edge off and it makes you more functional. Like yeah. all it does, it allows me to like sleep and have conversations with people. Yeah. And that's really it. <laughs> it's like, why is there stigma around that? I don't get it. Yeah. So why was this cut? Um, well, I guess it was cut because um, the story, the focus of the story was his journey as a faith healer. And so we weren't really going, we weren't taking the deepest dive into his um, history with schizophrenia. Yeah. So the schizophrenia was more of a coda to the story. It was like the denouement, as we say sometimes here at Snap Judgment, right? Yeah, yeah. Denouement coda. Pick your poison. And the I, I remember it though, because at the end he's like looking back on it, like let's face it, I was a little nuts, and it just kind of it's like let's just leave it at that. Totally. So Joe, what do you have to play for me? Okay, so Liz, today I have for you a clip from a story from maybe about nine months ago. It's called The Writing is on the Wall. And the talker for this story was uh, a lawyer from a small southern town in Georgia who had like the best name of any person we've ever brought on the show ever. His name was McCracken Poston. <laughs> Anyways, McCracken Poston is a former state legislature who lost in this like really humiliating election and just had to go back to his law practice. So almost out of spite, he decided that he was going to represent um, the most hated man in town. It was this guy named Alvin Ridley, who was like a hermit who lived in this like old boarded up house that no one was ever in. And Alvin Ridley had been charged with effectively locking his wife up and killing her. But basically over the course of the trial, all this amazing evidence comes to light and it turns out that he's he's innocent. And uh, so this is a clip from right after the trial, after he's acquitted and McCracken's talking to Alvin. So I said, Alvin, you know, we won. I want to take you to dinner. I want you to think of the finest restaurant in Chattanooga, and I'll take you there right now. And he said, what about Hardee's? <laughs> well, that's a fast food chain in the South and elsewhere. And I said, well, if that's where you want to go, I'll take you. But on the way to Hardee's, I'm talking to him. I'm trying to build him up and let him grow from this moment. And I said, Alvin, you know, you've got to understand you thought everybody was against you, but 12 people just said they believed you, and they actually liked you, I believe. And you have to understand that, and I want you to not be thinking that everybody's against you. I said, I want you to start trying to speak to people. So we walk into Hardy's. There's a line. We're standing in line. A lady turns around and looks at us, and Alvin says, Hey, I'm that feller they said killed his wife. But the jury said I didn't kill her. <laughs> and he just stands there staring at her. And she left the restaurant. <laughs> and so I thought, well, you know, there's a start. That's it. Oh, he's totally innocent. He's just really weird. Yeah. No, he's like, his problem is he's too innocent, perhaps. Yeah. Too innocent for this world. Yeah. Oh. So why'd you have to cut it? 
I had to cut it because this guy, McCracken Poston, I mean, you can tell he's just a born storyteller. And so ultimately we had like just this abundance of ways to end the story. And um, we decided on another one. We didn't want to choose this one because ultimately we just spent the entire story acquitting Alvin and showing that he's you know a real human being, and um, and so we didn't want to we didn't want to end on a note where we're making fun of him. We thought we'd um, we'd, we'd give him a proper send off. So you just had to sacrifice this piece along with all the other pieces you left on your cutting room floor. Yeah, along with the fifty other pieces that are radio worthy that uh, you'll never hear. That's a gruesome scene. <laughs> All right, Liz, tell me what you have. Okay. Well, I went to, as you know, I went to Standing Rock, you know, in the end of November. I realized even more fully when I was there how when you are on the front lines, it really is like you're in a war zone, which I've never been to. Um, So this is one young man that I met. His name is Tomas Lopez. He's 24. I actually interviewed Tomas Lopez um, at camp in a yurt. So, you know, you can actually hear the outside a little bit in this piece of tape, um, including a helicopter that flies overhead. We stood behind the line that they said we needed to stand behind. We did everything that they told us to do. And when we went to end our prayer, one of the police officers looked at me, targeted me, said, arrest him. He grabbed me very aggressively and they threw me to the ground. And they wanted me to react. They wanted me to be violent like them. And I I refuse. I didn't fight them. I didn't talk back to them. I didn't wish bad on them. I sat in that cell and I prayed. I showed them, I'm not your enemy, sister. I'm not your enemy, brother. Hmm. It's pretty powerful. What do you think is so powerful about it? I think the moment that he said that he didn't wish anything bad on them, I I couldn't help but think that if I were in that situation, that I wouldn't just be angry and upset, especially in light of everything that's been going on in this country with authority, you know, abusing their power on someone that has very little to defend themselves with. Yeah. What's crazy is I remember that when I was on the front lines, there was a police standoff for six hours that I asked a lot of people, well, you know, what are you willing to sacrifice for this fight? And a lot of people said my life. And I feel like I've heard that a lot before, but I've never really seen someone mean it. There was this moment where someone said, hey, like, you know, you're the media. We really need you to get this story out. Stand behind me. I'll take a bullet for you. And the police had their guns pointed at us. Hmm. And I've just never experienced that kind of real willingness to Give yourself for a cause. Thank you, Pat Masidi Miller, Eliza Smith, Joe Rosenberg, Liz Matt for sharing your darlings, and Davy Kim for producing this segment. been listening to the Snap Judgment 2016 Look Back Special. And if you're thinking to yourself, shoot, whatever that is, I need more of it. You're in luck. Just subscribe to the free and amazing Snap Judgment podcast full episodes waiting now for you. 
Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We just dropped the Bell's Atlas mixtape on the podcast feed. It's funky, sexy, sultry, cool. Get some. Snap was produced by the team that never says goodbye even when it's 3 a.m. and you're loading the dishwasher as a hint. Hi, the good China from the Uber producer, Mark Ristich. Pat, get back, do that with C.D. Miller. Spirit God, Anna Sussman. Joe, the animal wrangler, Rosenberg. Davey Kim wears Wrangler jeans. Nancy, the horse whisperer, Lopez. Eliza, the cat whisperer, Smith. Renzo Gorio is kinder than your grandmother. Leon Morimoto shouldn't do that in the sink. Taylor DeCott sleeps upside down in a closet, and Jasmine Aguilera ordered a pre-cooked Thanksgiving meal from Safeway, threw it in the oven, and passed it off like she'd slaved over a hot stove. She did that. Yep. And let me clear up any confusion. You see, this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could set up a Santa trap on the roof and serve roast reindeer for Christmas Day. Boo! No one can do that, kiddies. The magic will stop them. And you will still, still, not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is WNYC. What's your-